0: If you would, I would ask you to begin this part of the service this morning by breathing in deeply and out deeply. We'll do this together. Please breathe in and breathe out. Why are we doing this, you're asking? That is known as a sigh of relief. You see, When I was looking at this passage from Acts earlier in the week, I realized that it is far more complex than it seems on the surface. It appears to be just a simple, straightforward story, but it's not. And I decided, doing heavy ministerial calculations, that it would take about 50 minutes to do this passage, True Justice. Looking at the ecclesiology of it, looking at the background of the text in Acts, looking at the history of the church. Oh, it's wonderful. And I could have had you here for 50 minutes. And then I said to myself, I said, self, do you think that the people of Red Deer Lake want a 50-minute sermon on the book of Acts? And I thought, probably not. So you are saved. What I'm going to do now is considerably less painful and substantially shorter. The problem is that the initial reading of this passage does seem quite simple and straightforward. The background, the few verses before we read, simply said that the disciples in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, which was still the the key of the Jewish church at this time, sent Philip North up into Samaria in the north of Palestine, and he preached. And we're told then that their crowds listened eagerly. There was great joy. There was healing. There was celebration. They made a new congregation. New Christians, new church. Everybody wins. And so we come to our story today. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God... They weren't happy. Remember, the Samaritans were a northern branch of Judaism, broken off from the south when the kingdoms were separated. They did things differently. They didn't go to the temple, and they were not looked upon as very pleasant people. So you can see the poor apostles in Jerusalem were sitting around and going like, I know you say they're Christians, but that means like we'd have to go to committee meetings with them and synods with them, and oh, this is this is uncomfortable. And so they sent Peter and John up to Samaria to make sure that everything was okay. I think what they were looking for, bluntly, was a way out of the contract. You know, no, sorry, you thought you were Christians, but you really aren't, and that's it. Unfortunately, Peter and John got there. They saw this is a living Christian community. So Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And now you see this seemingly harmless and very straightforward story becomes a distorted and puzzling mess of history and theology. For one thing, why did the church in Samaria need the approval of the church in Jerusalem? Lots of other churches were being set up, and we don't hear people running back and forth. So that seems a peculiarity. Why, what does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit? You know, what did Peter and John find they were lacking when they arrived there? We aren't told, but they did. And then, exactly, what did Peter and John do? They laid on hands. We know what that means—it's a calling down of a spirit or a blessing of people. But, but, so what actually happened then? That was different from before, it's frustrating because we simply do not have enough context to answer most of these questions in a definitive way, though theologians have been doing so for the last 2,000 years. And you get many, many different opinions, especially between Protestants and Catholics. Because, of course, the Catholics like the idea of a centralized church where one group decides, and Protestants, we just wander off and sort of do our own sort of thing. (laughs) But the basic question is still there. You know what actually happened at that time. You know before we know that they were filled with enthusiasm and filled with joy. And so after they had the hands laid upon them, were they enthusiasticer and joy filleder? I don't know. Like there obviously something changed, but we don't know what it was. And wouldn't it be nice to know? So instead of trying to follow all the loose threads of this ball of a story, this wool ball of a story, I would like to look rather at what does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit and to be a Christian for us right here in this place today. Now, in the United Church, officially, I now speak on behalf of the United Church of Canada, Uh, to become a member of the Christian church, you are baptized, which is the entry rite, washed and brought into the church as a new person, and then you are confirmed by the laying on of hands, the receiving of the Spirit. And then, probably for church people especially, uh, you get a piece of paper with the minister's name and the board chair's name on it. So, you know, now I'm here, I'm a member of this church. Now, that is the official policy of the United Church of Canada to whom be some authority and glory and honor and all that. In the real United Church, which we are here today, many people, and I'm not asking here for a show of hands, have never gone through that process. Or if they did, it was a long time ago. And so I know you're sitting there saying, well, then we're not part of this church? We haven't had hands laid upon us? Maybe you've come over from a different tradition where baptism didn't play the same role, so I've never been baptized. Does that mean I'm some way outside the doors at the beginning of the service? You know, what? what is really going on here? Uh, do we believe in receiving the Holy Spirit? And if we do, how does it happen? And, and maybe the most important question for most people is the very simple question, and how do I know if I've got it? Because that would be a uh, A good thing to know. One of the problems we have is that the book of Acts itself was written and there is again debate on this. I went to Cambridge about five years ago now and we discussed this for a whole week when the book of Acts was written. It's long after the events that are reported here. It wasn't till at the earliest in the 190s and I'm of the opinion maybe even into the first century or the second century into the 1 to 110 somewhere. So it was written a long time after things like this were actually happening. So to say this is historical, maybe looking at events through an improper filter. Paul, Paul wrote when all this was happening. So let's look at what Paul was saying and what did he say about the coming of the Holy Spirit and what it meant to the church, because we have here the words of a first-person observer. Paul faced a church that had many divisions, People were arguing about things in the church. Now, please, at this point, you may put on your shocked faces. Oh, no. Oh, thank goodness they aren't here at Red Deer Lake. Wow, wait, terrible. No, there were. There was, for instance, in the realm of the spirit, there were many people in many congregations who really were involved in a physical kind of expression of God's presence. There was dancing, there was singing, there was speaking in tongues, there were ecstatic moments of joy and celebration. Uh, We're told one of the gifts of the Spirit that people needed to have was to be able to interpret tongues as people spoke them. But that wasn't every church. So some churches were doing those things. Other churches, we'd be far more uh, accustomed to their kind of worship as they simply followed the basic Jewish form worship, which, by the way, is what you're doing here today, though you may not realize that. There were also even arguments about who baptized whom and who had authority. You remember the great debate over, "So I was baptized by Apollos. Well, (laughs) I was baptized by Paul, (laughs) you know, I mean, your baptism isn't nearly as good as my baptism. I probably got more spirit than you did when it happened. So, Paul knew these things. These were not theoretical problems back in history. These were happening around him. And Paul, I, I always send a, a sense of frustration in his letters because I think to him it was so obvious and yet he had to spell it out to people. And one place he spells it out quite clearly is Galatians chapter five. People, what does it mean to have the Spirit? You know, how do I know it's in me? There must be some sort of signs. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you've got the Holy Spirit, those sort of things are central in your life. That's how you know you have it. And that then was, I think, accepted. You know, that's what it's about. By the way, notice fruit there is singular. So these things are sort of a ball. You know, you can't say, I'm going to be very generous to people, but I'm not going to love them. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's all together. You do all of these things. So, of course, immediately people saw this. Okay, it's in how we act. Well, but do some people have more of it than others? For example, I'm a preacher. You know, I must have more spirit than <laughs> you people do. And other people say, no, we're, we're in teaching. Most important thing is to teach people about Jesus, so you need to be a teacher. And then the Healing Touch Committee came up, well, wait a minute, you know, a healing, I mean, Jesus' ministry was a healing ministry. And so now we were arguing about who had what, which was the best, who was the best. These were real people in the Bible. We sometimes forget this when we read it. This, these were real people. These were real congregations, and we can just breathe happily that we're, yeah, we're part of it all. we We're there. So Paul tried to, he said, so Paul lists all of these many gifts, healing and preaching and exhorting, and he says, okay, these are all good gifts. All good gifts. They all come from the Holy Spirit. They're all part of this love and joy and peace and kindness. Yeah, that's how you express them. They're actions. We all do actions. But, and then he, in 1 Corinthians, he comes to a great crescendo in his work, and he says this, but strive for the greater gifts. You know the, the big things. This is what it's really all about. Whether you're on the board or not on the board, whether you're singing the choir or not singing, the, it's all about this. And I will show you a still more excellent way. And at this point, of course, the, the page turns and we're in 1 Corinthians 13, the great hymn about love. Basically, what Paul says is, and the big sign that the Spirit is with you is the one I put first in Galatians, and the one I'm talking about now, the greatest gift is love, you know, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So you say, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? Is it if your life in your daily actions is centered on love? And all of those other things, are you patient? Are you generous? Are you self-controlled? Do you look at the world around you through eyes of compassion, through the eyes of Christ? There it is. It's about the way we act. It's not about your theology. That plays a part, but that's only sort of a description we give to ourselves about why we're acting. It's not about fancy words or biblical words or being able to quote what the first verse of 1 Corinthians 13 is. No, that, that's not what it's about. It's about love. And Paul says, that's shown in your love. Jesus said it's shown in giving a cup of cold water to somebody. That's what I'm really interested in. Not, you know, whether you speak in tongues, not whether you're a great preacher or a great singer, or whether you head up the committee or the board. No, that, that isn't the great gift. The great gift is having the courage and the power to act in love. I'd say vision, too. Vision, courage, and power. We understand what love is. We look at Christ. We have the courage to stand up and do something that may be loving, but maybe not particularly pleasant to everyone. And then we know from our hearts that we have the power to carry out those actions. By the way, that's an exact parallel to faith, hope, and love. Faith. God is with me. I I have a vision of what the world is like. Hope. I have courage. That when I take the step, and it's going to be a difficult one, I'm going to be okay. And power, which is really the power of love. So that's... That's what it is, and I believe, as I said last week, that God nudges us all the time into these actions. I think we know deep in our hearts what's right, because we've all, you know, not done that thing that we were asked to do. And well, you know, I had good reasons. I I did, but deep down, no. This is where stillness that we heard about earlier. This is where it becomes central. You know, we need that stillness where we say, all right. What am I supposed to be doing here? Uh, a good question is not what would Jesus do, because then we're looking at a person who lived in a very different society 2,000 years ago. It's what does the living Christ demand of us at this time? Same demands. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So when the idea comes to us, we can say, all right, it's in this, in this ball field I believe in it. I see it. I can do it. The one thing that stops us usually, usually is hesitancy, but sometimes we listen to a voice in our heads that we think is absolutely authentic, and then we end up way over. Well, I shouldn't say over here, as if you're not the authentic <laughs> people. Uh, you know, and then we end up over here, and we're saying, oh, you know, why did I do that? You know, it looked so good at the time. It sounded good. Uh, it sounded good when Bernice said so at the board meeting. We thought this was a great idea. Now, oh, no, we haven't done the right thing. And so what do you do about that? Well, this is when the other great part of our faith comes and that we're forgiven. See, that's, that's the given in all things. It means that there is no going off the road in Christ because Christ is still with us and in us. The love, the peace, the hope, they're all still there. And we can say, well, maybe I shouldn't have eaten the three liters of ice cream after lunch. Maybe that wasn't a very good idea. But now I'm here. And now there's always another path to take. And this is what people fear. You know, if we make the wrong decision and we're off somewhere, then we're sort of lost. That's it. I've lost the strain. No, we're forgiven. William Weber said, the forgiveness and freedom in Christ means for the Christian that even though we may be wrong... Even though we may be wrong, there is no reason to cop out. You know, I made a mistake. No, it's all bad. I'm just quitting. No, I made a mistake. Yep, I did. I'm forgiven. I'll do my best to make amends. I'll do my best to, to carry on. I'm going off in a new direction. God with me. And so we come to the understanding that the, the center of the Christian faith are those acts in which that love is shown. And they're centered here at this place. In faith and in hope and in love, we join together. See, here's where we declare our faith. We believe that God is alive and works somehow in the universe. That's why we come here. We have a vision of how that world should be. Our visions differ, and we have to put them together, and sometimes, as I said, sometimes we haven't got quite the right one, but we're trying, we're we're striving to see how it would be if we really loved other people. And then we have power. We, as individuals, and certainly as a congregation, as a church, as the church, have power to act and to change. Because we are, in some way, bound in the body of Christ shown here with the bread and the wine this is the moment when we receive the Holy Spirit you may not feel a jolt of electricity come down your body you may not jump up and speak in tongues but you'll know here as you stand here with other people and share Yeah, this is where it really begins this is what it's truly all about And I would ask then that the meal be brought in for us now at this time.